welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Swanger. Welcome back to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, conversations where people who make the spirits industry much more than what's just in your glass. I'm Chris Swanger, President and CEO of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. Today, we have a special guest, U.S. Master Distiller, Bruce Joseph. Bruce is an industry veteran who's been instrumental in putting American whiskey on the map and taking pride back to the back bars across the country. But 30 years ago, when Bruce got started, American whiskey and whiskey altogether was in dire straits. In this episode, we'll talk to Bruce about his amazing career, what he sees about the spirits industry moving forward, and the incredible work that he is doing for Hoagling and Company, a San Francisco-based company in championing the return of pot-stilled whiskey through the launch of Old Potrero. Welcome, Bruce. First and foremost, Bruce, what are you sipping today? I am sipping some prime time old Potrero, six-year-old rye bourbon. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, what a coincidence, because so am I. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you. And it is beautiful. 30 years ago, when you started distilling, the landscape of American whiskey was in tough straits. I started in the industry in 1995, so it's not too far off, and I remember those days. For those of our listeners who may not remember those dark days, talk a little bit about the state of the spirits industry when you began your career in the 80s. Well, I started at Anchor as a brewer before we branched out and um, started distilling. I started in 1980, and... We got licensed at the beginning of 1993, but leading up to that, Fritz Maytag talked often about his desire to do rye whiskey. And those, I guess, were kind of dark days that it seemed like American whiskey, bourbon, and rye, that there there wasn't a lot of interest in it and not a lot of respect for the products. And we thought, as brewers, we were... We were certainly bourbon and rye drinkers, and you know the whiskey is good. And it was something to be proud of, and it it just wasn't getting that recognition at the time. And you know, I think when we started getting into rye whiskey in the early '90s, you know, there were maybe three rye whiskeys that you could ever find in the Bay Area. Most bars would have a, a bottle of Old Overholt on the back bar, and it would, you know, kind of have a layer of dust on it because it never got touched. It, I don't know. The interest just didn't seem to be there. And there's some things I think for us, one of the things that started to get people talking about whiskey was the uh, Michael Jackson publishing what was it, the World Guide to Whiskey in the in the late '80s. Something that kind of maybe elevated the status of whiskey. Yeah. Opened it up. Yeah. And what about the art of distilling that made you kind of want to devote your professional life to this effort? Well, like, as I said, I started as a, as a brewer and from 1980 until we started distilling in 93. And 
I just fell in love with kind of the the combination of things, you know, that doing kind of a, a you know, using like brewing and then later distilling techniques that were traditional and the idea of a kind of a small scale production where the people making it are involved with all facets of the production it was just something that spoke to me that there was a, a lot that went into kind of creating and and developing products and then the the thing of making something that you could really be proud of that that you thought was of good quality and you were proud to to be attached to well you accomplished that many times over fritz maytag he was a legendary brewer and he hand selected you what was it like to learn and work with a legend like Fritz Maytag? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a great experience. I consider myself lucky to have worked for Fritz. You know, I worked for Fritz for 30 years. And, you know, Fritz was, he very much followed his muse. And he trusted that what inspired him would end up being a good product. He wasn't too interested in in current trends, um, he he was more interested in um, in kind of blazing his own trail. And to get to that point, it had to be something that excited him, that inspired him. And I think you know, rye whiskey and the start of our distillery had two things that really spoke to him, and that was he liked historical things, and not to say that he was bound by by history and tradition, but he was inspired by it. He also didn't like to do things that everyone else was already doing that was currently popular. And so, of course, like as we just discussed, getting into to rye whiskey at that point certainly satisfied that part of the equation for him. And you were key. You were key in championing the return of pot distilled whiskey through the launch of Old Petrero, which is beautiful. America's first crafted whiskey. What can you tell us about the passion of distilling the way and the challenges that it creates? Producing on a, a small scale and, you know, like those old techniques, there are challenges involved. But, but again, it's, it's like kind of the traditional techniques are, are also a source of inspiration. And, and I like to think that we, we're inspired by tradition, but we don't want to be tied or, you know, even handcuffed by tradition that if there are areas that we think we can improve on, we're all for that. Some things we do are, are very traditional. Some things maybe maybe um, a little more modern where, you know, technology or science has brought something to it that is an improvement on old techniques. So I'd like to think we're a mix of both. New doubt. Experimentation. I mean, that's a big part of what you pursued to finally perfect 100% malted rye whiskey recipe that really does harken back to the original whiskeys of America back in the day. What did that process look like and how did you learn from them? Well, there was tons of experiments and hit mess, hit mess, <laughs> yeah. hit mess. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, uh, to be honest, we were in a really I would think to a, a lot of new distilleries, kind of a, an enviable position in that we had Anchor Brewing supporting what we were doing. So we had, we didn't really have timetables that we had to have a product out and we could 
experiment and kind of work on, on our skills as distillers for as long as it took. Uh, not, the, yeah. And we needed it because when we came into this, like I said, we were, we were brewers and being brewers certainly served us well for mashing and distilling and yeast management. That was um, an area that we didn't have to, you know, spend as much time on. But but distilling, yeah, we made a lot and we threw a lot away and we, you know, tried different things and, you know, sour mash, sweet mash. I think not knowing a lot about something might be freeing in a certain sense that we didn't feel tied to certain production methods <laughs> because we didn't know what they were, you know. Yeah. And and I I like to think that, you know, one of the things that we experimented with from the very beginning was selection of wood for barrels. And we were very lucky to have a cooperage that was willing to experiment with us. But Fritz had a background with wine and he wondered right away. It's like, why is air dried wood, fine grain, extra fine grain? Why is that only for wine? And we started experimenting from the very beginning, doing air-dried, extra fine grain or fine grain barrels that were went through a full toasting regimen before they were charred. And we tried a lot of different things on that end. The barrel that we use now is kind of our standard barrels, 24-month air-dried, extra fine grain, yeah. toasted, and then charred. And uh, toasted and charred over an oak fire. And we think that was that was one of those things that kind of questioning and not just going with what was the standard bourbon barrel at the time it was really a benefit to us and a benefit to our whiskey. Innovations that make make a big difference, right? In yeah, you were one of the you developed the first America's craft whiskey, but also craft gin in Gina, Gina Perro. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I hope. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's. That's how currently how we pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. And not just stick with whiskey, but with some of the unique challenges. What were some of the unique challenges that were presented to you? Just the hit and miss and having to be resilient, right? Just pushing forward and keep trying. Yeah. Well, one thing that we learned is that so much of what we learned about distilling whiskey didn't really apply to gin. It's, it's a, a totally different animal. And I would say some of the challenges early on as a a small gin distiller was was just like sourcing botanicals was really, really difficult, like to source high quality botanicals. You know, you'd talk to people in in the spice and botanical business and they were used to selling um juniper berries by the rail car. Sure. <laughs> we were um we were looking for like a a small box. <laughs> so you didn't want it commodity. Yeah. You didn't want commodity. Yeah. So that's amazing. And and you know, I would say, you know, with gin that continuing to source quality botanicals is one of the challenges of it. That, you know, it's an ongoing thing that, you know, yearly that we do. But you know, I think like our development of a gin recipe was another area where having the amount of time we needed to develop a recipe was was such a a bonus for us that we spent a year and a half to get to the recipe of Junipero and kind of came up with a very, very basic gin recipe with just four botanicals and then did just countless small pilot distillations 
adding one botanical to that and just, you know, all kinds of different combinations and, and you know, took our time. We were very happy with the results. Another thing with our gin that that same thing with, with barrels, with not being tied to the way things have always been done because of, I guess, our, our lack of experience is when it came time to bottle Junipero, you know, we assumed gin, it's all filtered. And we decided at, at the end that we had worked hard to kind of come to this certain intensity of flavor, and um, we didn't want to filter it. And we had people tell us, you can't sell an unfiltered gin. And, you know, we took that chance, and we were very happy that we did. And the result, I mean, great, great gin, number one, great packaging, beautiful bottle, and great experience across the board. In addition to distilling in small batches, you continue to hand bottle in San Francisco, one of the most beautiful cities in the, in the country and around the world. What are the benefits of that process to hand bottle for you? Well, I, I, I could like easily skip some of the benefits of hand bottling. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, the bottling is, um, yeah, well, what it is. But our production is small and we have a small crew. And again, I think it's, you know, as I mentioned with, our early days that our staff being involved with all as aspects of the production. You know, it's something that, that I like, that that attracted me to it, that you're knowledgeable about all aspects of it. So, And Bruce, look, I'm biased, obviously, but Haldwain and Company is really one of the most precious companies in the world. It's a dominant force in artisanal spirits distilling, and it has been over 30 years. Can you talk a little bit about the legacy and the history of the company in Hoagling and the deep roots, deep roots in beautiful San Francisco? When we started in 1993, we were Anchor Distilling. And so our company was Anchor Brewing and Distilling. And when Fritz Maytag retired in 2010 and he sold the company to a group, uh, Tony Folio and, and others, they owned an importer called Price Imports. And when they bought it, still our production arm of the company, and Price Imports, the importing company that they already own, became one company, Anchor Distilling. And the Price Imports that became Anchor Distilling, our importing side of the business, just has all these wonderful products. Um, just, just looking at the whiskey that our company imports, like Nika and Cavalon and and, you know... They're just some great products. We have Luxardo, and I think everyone knows about Luxardo. It really is, I think, a lot of companies that are in line with what we tried to do as, as a distillery. A fairly small, artisanal, and we hope of, of, you know, just the highest quality. In Bruce, a lot of companies have moved out of San Francisco, but San Francisco is y'all's mainstay, and y'all are doubling down and investing in the great city. Could you talk about that a little bit, in all the roots in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, our company is just so tied to San Francisco that, you know, you can't really even imagine operating someplace else besides San Francisco in the, the, uh, the Bay Area. You know, just from growing out of Anchor Brewing and the history that Anchor Brewing had um, with San Francisco. And then our history as a distillery, from the name of the products to the inspiration, the, you know, the name of our company even now. 
Yeah. Hodling is, you know, if you know the story of Hodling, it's a San Francisco story and part of San Francisco history. So this is where we all live. And, you know, the area, for those of us that live here, we love living here. And I think it also is an area that inspires making products like this. Well, just a little promo. Dan Lease, the president and CEO of Hodling, is fantastic, obviously, and uh, serves on uh, the Discus Board of Directors. And we appreciate Dan's leadership and support of our efforts at Discus. Cocktail culture. Yeah, you know, you started in the industry in the early days where there wasn't probably a cocktail culture, really. And we've seen it evolved, and we're living in the cocktail culture. We just recently reported that Spirits has overtaken market share and revenue against our friends in, in the beer industry. What do you think will happen in the evolution of the cocktail culture going forward? I think especially, it, it's been a long time thing in the Bay Area, but people are interested in where the products that they consume, where they come from, how they're made. The stories behind them. Yeah, the, the stories story. behind them, quality of them. So I think for our company, you know, that bodes well. And I think the whole idea, like people being health conscious and maybe aren't drinking the same volume, but drinking, drinking better. Better. You get yeah. Yep. I think that all is, um, you know, it's a real opportunity for us. And it's um, what works well for us. Yeah, it's amazing. Just the other day, I was in a conversation and one of our industry colleagues was in San Francisco recently and went to a couple of establishments to check it out. And the bars were fully promoting artisanal spirits and great cognacs, whiskeys across the board, vodkas, gins, and so forth. And it was hard to find beer on tap there. And look, great respect to everybody in the beer industry. You know, the foundation, the foundation of hodling really starts with beer. And look, the world is cyclical and so forth, but <laughs> it's such an exciting time for the spirits industry. Do you feel that excitement? Have you felt it over the last 15 years Why this rise has really, you know, caught some fun momentum? Yeah, yeah, I, definitely. It is really something. And, you know, just, just if you can find that conversation just to whiskey, the interest and the just the change in the world of whiskey and you know and certainly for cocktails and cocktail culture you know we're kind of one of the hotbeds of yeah. the whole uh, craft cocktail thing and it's amazing and it really and again it ties into you know cocktail ingredients people wanting to know what they're consuming and the local and and kind of fresh aspects of of the cocktails too and so yeah, it's a it's an interesting time, and it's just hard to see people going back. This thing is uh, is of interest to people. So Bruce, there are a lot, and this is a testament on why things are so exciting for industry. There's a lot of aspiring distillers. What's your advice to an aspiring distiller that is listening to the Spirited Advocate podcast and sitting here with a legend like yourself? <laughs> Looking to grow your brands? Get the brands in front of more than 200,000 bar, restaurant, and retail buyers with Provi, the largest e-commerce marketplace for beverage alcohol. Brands of all sizes use Provi to market their beer, wine, and spirits 
to capture the awareness of over 200,000 trade buyers who use Provi's Marketplace to discover and purchase wholesale products online. Showcase your products in the marketplace, tell the brand story, drive conversation with high intent buyers, and access B2B purchasing insights. All in one place, get with Provi, a proud partner member of the Distilled Spirits Council. To learn more, check out www.provi.com forward slash discus, D-I-S-C-U-S. God, I'm serious. I'm serious. Be, you can be humble, but yeah. it's the truth. Yeah, if you're available for my funeral, I'd like you to speak at it. Yes. <laughs> you know, when you talk about aspiring distillers like craft distillers, almost everyone you meet or I've met like in, in craft distilling and, and craft brewing too, you know, they got into it because of a, a love of, of the product, a love of the industry. And I would say, you know, I was lucky in going to work for Anchor. It was a a committed group of people. And that was one of the first things that made me think, boy, I want to work here and I want to continue to work here, was kind of an inspired, dedicated group of people who were kind of on a mission to make quality products and also, you know, kind of bring that to the world, you know, that you know, not only do we want to make good stuff is we want people to have an opportunity to drink this and to see uh, what we're talking about. So I would say if I if I had um, one bit of advice for people is is try to get into a situation where you surround yourself with people that kind of think like you that have a love of the product and want to produce the best thing that they can produce. That's a life lesson because. You're only as good as the people that you're surrounded by, right? And uh, I think that, that that point you just made illustrates that. Okay, fun question. Past or present, you could have a cocktail, and I am afforded the luxury, <laughs> albeit virtually, to have a terrific six-year-old rye whiskey here. Uh, if you could have a cocktail with anybody, apart from me, Bruce, uh, <laughs> Could be someone that's in heaven right now. Uh, you never know. Yeah. When I think of this, I think, well, of course, we probably all have relatives, but we would like to have the chance to spend a few more minutes with that have passed on. And But it's more interesting to come up with historical figures, I think, for this exercise. So, And I was thinking about this and you know, one person that I've always had a lot of, a lot of respect for was Eleanor Roosevelt. And I think she was kind of the conscience of of the new deal and the the fdr administration and and i thought she would be a fascinating person and then i thought you know like kind of more popular culture too i i get more than one right chris (laughs) okay thank you um i was thinking someone who who um it affected me when he passed away during covid was john prine yeah and then here you go, John Prime. And then yep. my third one was Joe Strummer. So those are my three. And ideally, I'd like to get all three all three of them together at once. I think that would be... Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? I, if I could, I'd throw Harry Truman in there as well, because he was a big bourbon American whiskey drinker. All right. Well, Breckley. That's right. Yeah. 
So, look, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, Bruce, thank you and uh, great cheers. Thank you for all you do for the industry in just making wonderful, beautiful, beautiful craft whiskey. And thank you for your leadership and your innovation. Thank you very much, Chris. It's very nice of you to say that. And I, I enjoyed talking to you. So good. So fun. Cheers. Here's to your health. Cheers. I'd like to give a big thank you to Bruce Joseph for joining us today for the Spirited Advocate podcast to talk about his amazing career, the future of the spirits industry, and the amazing work that he is doing on behalf of Hodling and Company. A San Francisco-based company, if you want to learn more about their artisanal spirits, check it out, hodlingandcompany.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Spirited Advocate podcast in this episode. If you want to learn more, please be sure to subscribe. I'm Chris Swanger, and I have the privilege of leading the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. And thank you for enjoying and listening to the Spirited Advocate podcast. <laughs>